Renee, right, Renee, uh, at the break, and and she said, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry, I have a, I have a question," and I said, "Well, no, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Any question." Um, and I know we're all at different stages on our journey, and for some of us, the Bible is a very strange book. It's it, we didn't grow up with it, um, and so for the ver- for the last session, it's just gonna it could either be a really short session. <laughs> You won't have any questions, uh, or we could fill up the time with a conversation. But um, the third, the third part is just Q and A, and um, and if I if I don't have an answer for you, which could very well happen, uh, I prefer to say I don't know than make up things. So if you ask me a question and I don't have knowledge on it, uh, that's why I gave you my email uh, on that handout. And so uh, I would ask that you would maybe follow up with an email, uh, but also just keep that email if you want. And um, I know that you'll be uh, asked things uh, when you talk with non-Christians, and, and, and maybe something will hit you later on after our time together is over. Uh, please don't hesitate to email me. I, I wake up every morning and I've got emails uh, from Christians. <laughs> Uh, with questions, and I love, I love to help whenever I can. And if I don't have an answer, I can point you uh, towards someone that, that will. So anyway, uh, please take advantage of that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the New Testament now. Uh, just to review, the Old Testament can be broken down into these three sections. Uh, the instruction, the Torah, which is God's uh, covenant, the stipulations of God's covenant with Israel. And then you have the Nevi'im, or the prophets, and that tells the story of um, God's people basically failing to abide by those stipulations, culminating in the um, exile when uh, King uh, Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC came in and destroyed the temple and exiled God's people. Maybe you read the book of Daniel. And so uh, what you get in the New Testament, oh, and I'm sorry, the third section is the Ketuvim, our writings, which is really, it's it's literature of worship, liturgy, psalms, but also wisdom, right? And we talked about the three stages of life uh, that it addresses. So so that's the Old Testament. And uh, now we're gonna talk about the unique features of what we call the New Testament. Now, let me clarify something. Um, when we think of the words Old Testament and New Testament, uh, I think there's some confusion there. Uh, because when we hear the word testament, we tend to think of something that's being proclaimed. And so maybe we think, well, the Old Testament is sort of like maybe the old proclamation of the gospel and the New Testament is the new proclamation. Or maybe we just don't know what the word means. And that's a problem because it's the title of our Bible. (laughs) But the word testament comes from the Latin word testamentum. And the Latin word testamentum is just a translation of the Greek word diatheke. And a better translation of diatheke is covenant. So that may help you. Instead of calling it the Old Testament, call it the Old Covenant. Okay? And the New Testament is actually the New Covenant. And it goes back to Jesus, who on the night of his betrayal, when he was giving the bread uh, and the wine to his disciples, 
which of course represented his death on the cross, his life. He said, this is the new testament or the new covenant. Okay, so it goes there. But of course, Jesus is quoting Jeremiah, who's in the Nevaim, the prophets. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is dealing with the exile and the sins of God's people. And yet says, God says through Jeremiah, I will cut a new covenant with Israel, right? But this covenant will be different than the old covenant because I will write my commandments into their hearts, right? Anticipating the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and um, they will teach one another uh, what it means to, to know God and so forth. And I will forgive their sins. So, so that's, that's where we get old covenant, new covenant, okay? It's really just Jeremiah 31 as Jesus interprets it in the Last Supper, okay? All right, so let's look at the new covenant. And uh, the gospels are really remarkable documents. Um, it, the, the apostles basically came up with a new genre. Uh, there was nothing quite like them before Jesus. Um, they have elements of the Old Testament in them. They have elements of the, the Greek biography the Greeks love biographies. Uh, maybe you heard of Plutarch. Uh, he's a first century Greek writer. He would write biographies of the Caesars. And they were really interested in how people's lives began and ended, whether they ended well. Uh, and so the Gospels has a bit of that. It, 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 it has the birth narratives of Jesus, and it obviously it focuses on his death on the cross and his, and his resurrection. But the Gospels have so much more than that. Um, they're filled with his teachings, discipleship, uh, all kinds of things that make them very unique documents. Now, the church had a problem because the apostles and their associates published four Gospels. <laughs> and these four Gospels are earlier than the later Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which was written in the second century. These four Gospels were all written within a generation of Jesus's ministry, um, Mark was the memories of Peter and Mark was Peter's interpreter. Is that interesting? Uh, Mark traveled with Peter and when Peter was, was, was killed um, in AD 64 by Nero, the church came to Mark and said, would you write down Peter's memories of Jesus for us? And that's where we got the first gospel, Mark. Matthew uh, was an apostle uh, among the 12. Um, Luke wasn't an eyewitness. He tells us that at the beginning of his gospel, but he was an associate of Paul who was called as an apostle. And, um, and then John uh, obviously was one of the 12, one of Jesus's disciples. So the early church had four gospels and they were all read in the public worship services. Are you following me? They're all being read in churches, <laughs> but they're all different, right? And, 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 and so that created some tensions and there were some non-Christians who actually criticized the church because of what they thought were contradictions uh, between these four different gospels. And if you've read the gospels, um, it's, it's really clear, right, that they, are very similar in some ways, but they also have significant departures from each other. So the interesting thing 
is the church never considered getting rid of any of them um, because they were all authoritative and they all went back to the earliest stages of the church. But rather what they wanted to do was to understand what God was trying to communicate. Now, this is gonna be a bit heady, but the mysteries of our faith are profound. And so I don't have, I'm not gonna simplify it. God reveals himself through Jesus as triune. The Trinity is really what distinguishes us from Islam and Judaism. I mean, that is the key distinction. Uh, the Trinity is this phenomenally paradoxical, wondrous idea, which is that God is one, <laughs> but three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and by the way, God formally introduces himself to his creation that way in Jesus' baptism, right? When Jesus is baptized, the clouds split and the Holy Spirit comes to him in the form of a dove, right? And then a voice of the Father says, this is my beloved son. So you get this Trinitarianism you know, expressed right in that key event. Incidentally, that's why when you were baptized, you were baptized in the name of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because your baptism mirrors or echoes the baptism of Christ. Are you following me? Where the Trinity was presented. And so you and I have been brought into this mysterious triune life of God. And, and by the way, this is one facet of the mystery, but... When we, as Christians, say that God is love, how was God love before he created other people? You ever wonder about that? I mean, how was God love before creation? Was he a narcissist? But once you realize that God is triune, right, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that there is this mutual loving relationship between the three, then all of a sudden you see God's love, right, coming out of that mystery into creation. It's a beautiful idea, okay? So anyway, um, the early church said, you know what, maybe there's some of that mystery in the gospels also. Uh, and one of our earliest theologians, you can advance the slide, named Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh, Lyon is the ancient word for France. Uh, in fact, there's still a city of Lyon uh, in southern France. It's got really good food. But <laughs> uh, Irenaeus, uh, when he talks about the four gospels, and I should add, and I'll, I'll make it short, um, he's attacking a heretic named Marcion. Okay, you probably never heard of Marcion, and that's great. Uh, but Marcion rejected the four Gospels. He just took an edited version of Luke. Uh, he was like Thomas Jefferson. Have you ever heard of J the Jefferson Bible, where he cut out all the miracles and the resurrection and just kept the morals of Jesus? Anyway. Um, but that's what Marcion did. Is he edited, he basically, he basically created his own Gospel. And Irenaeus, along with the rest of the church, said, no, you can't do that. You can't. 
And so Irenaeus, when he talks about the four gospels, he describes them as a tetramorph gospel. And he describes them as being fourfold in form, but held together by one spirit. And what he does is he looks at the angels in Revelation 5. Do you remember the angels in Revelation had four faces? Okay, and this is gonna sound a bit mystical maybe to you, but let me show you that it goes right into our own heritage um, as Protestants. You can advance the slide. This is the front piece of the original King James Version of the Bible, uh, published in 1611. And uh, I know it's difficult for you to see, but you could just go on your computers later and do Google images and look at it yourself in more detail. Uh, but uh, in the top corner there, um, you've got Matthew, one of the evangelists, writing down his gospel, and beside him is a human face. And then if you go to uh, your right in the top, do you see that lion in the corner there? Okay, that's Mark. <laughs> now advance the slide. I'm gonna go to the bottom of the page. Oops, there you go. Over here, do you see the ox with his horns kind of coming into the frame, barely? That's Luke. And then over here, do you see the eagle? That's John. That's the King James Version of the Bible. You see, going back to Irenaeus, the church associated each gospel with one of the faces of the angels uh, in the book of Revelation. Now the point is, is that these angels have four different faces, yet are what? One message. And we shouldn't, and this is the point, we should celebrate unity and diversity. Are you following me? I mean, that's just a good lesson for the city of Phoenix. <laughs> that's what I talking about earlier. Is, is, is God is a God of unity and diversity. Think about that. And think about how much trouble has come into the church, but also to the world, when human beings just choose unity or they just choose diversity. But God has both. God is both. And so the point that Irenaeus and all the church fathers after him, uh, and by the way, when you look at the manuscripts of the Gospels as they're being copied, they always have these faces. Not always, but generally they have these faces on them. Um, have any of you been to the Irish Cultural Center? It's pretty cool. Uh, it's right there on Central. They have a whole section in their library on the Book of Kells. You heard of that? It's the, it's the most precious book in Ireland. And in the book of Kells, you've got these four faces of these angels at the front of the Gospels. And there's a whole discussion there that you could read if you were interested. All right, keep going. <clears throat> All right, so, so that's the point. So when, when I read the Gospels and I see a difference between, say, Matthew and Mark, I don't get anxious about it. Are you following me? I don't get anxious about it. What I want to do is I want to explore what is the unique message that Matthew is wanting to convey in this event. All right? And when I read John. Oh, by the way, um, 
If you've ever been to Europe and you go into some of those beautiful cathedrals uh, where the priest preaches, there will often be an eagle. Have you ever noticed that? Um, the reason is because John was the first Christian to be given the title theologian. And it's because of his association with the eagle here. Uh, because when the church fathers read John's gospel, they felt like he was like an eagle because his thought would soar into the heavens. That makes sense? There was a transcendence to his thinking. So throughout the Middle Ages, whenever a Christian would get up to preach, there was always an homage to John uh, and his eagle. Okay. Uh, I was just talking to one of you at the break saying, you know, we evangelicals, we Protestants don't have enough symbolism in our tradition. <laughs> Maybe. Um, sometimes these symbols can be important as we're trying to understand our faith. Now, I want to talk about Acts. Who is the largest contributor to the New Testament? I'm so glad you got that wrong. Whenever I ask that question, people will always say Paul, but this may surprise you. Luke is actually the largest contributor to the New Testament. He wrote more words than any other writer. Yeah. Luke and Acts are the two largest books in the New Testament. And Acts is a unique work, right, because Luke was the only evangelist and by evangelist, I mean someone that wrote a gospel. Luke was the only evangelist to write a sequel. Now, did you notice that Acts stands between the gospels and Paul's letters? Right? It's a bridge. Because when you read the book of Acts, Luke talks about the churches, many of the churches that Paul writes to. Right? In Paul's first uh, or second missionary journey, he goes through the, the cities of southern Galatia. Right? That gives you the backdrop for Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, he goes into Corinth after giving his Areopagus speech in Athens right? and has a very successful evangelistic period in the, in the city there in Greece. And that gives you the background for 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And so the church fathers used Acts as a bridge to transition from the time of Christ to the time of the early apostolic period. Now, it doesn't end there. Uh, because Paul is clearly the one who is given the most attention in the book of Acts. And, and the reason for that is because Luke was his friend and accompanied him on his missionary journeys. But if you read the book of Acts carefully, he also gives roles to Peter. In fact, Peter is the central apostle uh, until Paul's calling. And he also gives a role to John and James, the brother of Jesus. Did you notice that? And so you have a sense of the, of the character of those three individuals. All right. You can advance the slide. Now, this, this is going to blow your mind, maybe. So, Luke writes Acts as a bridge between Jesus, Paul, and the apostles. He gives us the context for Galatians 
And by the way, at the very center of the book of Acts is the calling of Cornelius and the reconciling of Jews and Gentiles in the church. And so we know that for Luke, the relationship between Jews and Gentile believers was, was critical to him. Now, when you look at Galatians, at one point, Paul talks about three pillars of the faith that even though there was some friction, he and them were on the same page, right? While they were called primarily to serve the Jews, he was called to serve the Gentiles, but that they had fellowship with one another, right? Very important verse. Now look carefully at this. In Galatians 2.9, Paul writes, James and Cephas. Cephas is just the Aramaic name for Peter. It's Peter, okay? He says, James and Peter and John, the ones who are recognized to be pillars, those that stand, gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Barnabas was Paul's assistant. Luke talks about him in the book of Acts. That we might preach the gospel to the nations, the Gentiles, and they to the circumcision. Now, look at your Bible. If you've got your Bible with you, if you don't, don't worry about it. Look at it when you get home. But look at the table of contents at the very beginning of your book. Of the Bible there. So you've got for the New Testament the fourfold gospel Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then do you see Acts? It's a bridge. And then do you see you've got 13 letters from Paul? Okay, and by the way, the early church, there was division. Some believed that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul. Others believed it was written by one of his associates. So for that reason, the church put Hebrews um, at the end of Paul's letters. You see that? Because they weren't sure if he wrote it or an associate. In earlier manuscripts, Hebrews was actually further in. In some manuscripts, the book of Hebrews occurs after Romans. It's kind of interesting. Uh, but because there was a division of views about the writing of Hebrews, the church finally settled uh, by putting it last. But look at this. Did you notice that the rest of the New Testament goes James, first and second Peter, first and second and third John, Jude, Revelation. Now, do you notice that the order of the New Testament is the exact same order as Galatians 2.9? You see that? James, yeah, it did, it did blow your mind, didn't it? <laughs> James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John. You say, well, why is Jude where it is? Well, James was the brother of Jesus, Okay. Jude was the brother of James. And so what the church did is they made these little bookends of Jesus' brothers around this third and final collection. James at the beginning, Jude at the end. And then they left Revelation where it really needed to be, which was at the very end, okay? So what you get then, 
I think, is in the very arrangement of the New Testament, you've got Jesus, and then you've got the three pillars, and you've got Paul, with the idea that they are all ultimately harmonious together, right, in their depiction of Jesus as the Savior uh, of the world. Was that kind of cool? Was it worth waking up early on a Saturday morning for? I hope so. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you can advance the slide. So this is where we uh, began this morning. Um, and hopefully now uh, you have a little more context uh, to make sense of this image. Uh, it's an icon. So it's the transfiguration, and at the top, uh, you have Moses and Elijah, okay? Uh, when, when Jesus went up the mountain with uh, James, Peter, and John, <laughs> um, he was transfigured in front of them. By the way, the word transfigured, the, the Greek word is actually metamorphosis. And it was a technical term at the time for a chrysalis turning into a caterpillar. And um, the only other writer in the New Testament that used the word transfiguration or metamorphosis was Paul. And he uses that image to describe the Christian life. Um, for him, the Christian life is paradoxical because just as things are going into death, okay, and, and, and you, know, you can think about your own life. We were talking about the three stages of, of life in the Old Testament. You know, there was no resurrection there. <laughs> there was no, um, I mean, you, you basically learn to give things up and you die. But with Christ in the resurrection, God brought into this fundamentally new mode of existence, which is the realization that you and I one day will be raised with him, right? And that life on earth is, in comparison, short. And, <laughs> and, and so the ultimate significance of our life is on that, other, on that other end of things. And so when Paul talks about the Christian life, he talks about this, this simultaneous being crucified with Christ and living in Christ. And I know that makes sense to you, right? Because we are still in the mortal coil of things. We, we still age, we still suffer, we still live in a world of tragedy. Um, and yet we don't go into those things without hope, amen? Right, because the risen Christ is in us, right? And we've tasted the resurrection. We, we, we know because God raised Jesus from the dead that this is not the end of things. Right? And by the way, there are a lot of people all around us that do not know that. And could you imagine trying to make sense of life without that truth? Horrible. And so all of that gospel, that Pauline, that, 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 that deep reflection from Paul, I would suggest to you goes back to the transfiguration of what Jesus showed his disciples. Now, think about it for a second. What do you think Moses and Elijah represent? Non 
I think that's a pretty good guess, right? You think? Did you all hear that? The law and the prophets, the Torah and the Nevi'im. Do you see that? Because Moses is the author of the Torah and Elijah is the quintessential prophet, right? He's also the one that Malachi said would come, right, to invite the people to repent before the end of the days, end of the age. So, so do you see how this image brings the Old and the New Testament together? Now, that's only half of the piece. And so you've got Moses and you've got Elijah. And I love Luke's version of the story. Remember how I said that each gospel has its own unique story to tell? In Luke's gospel, when he talks about the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his, the word there in Greek is exodus. Is that interesting? His exodus, right? His movement from bondage into eternal life, death and resurrection, right? Which was just about to happen in the city of Jerusalem. And so the exodus is this big meta-narrative, this, this big story in the Old Testament converging and coming to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You see that? And when Peter wakes up, right, he's like, I don't, what is this? I, I don't understand. This is blowing my mind. And remember Peter said, hey, how about I make three tabernacles? I'll make a tabernacle for you, Jesus, and for Elijah, and for Moses, right? But the evangelists say that Peter was out of his mind, didn't know what he was talking about. For a second time, God speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son. And then he adds something to it. Listen to him. Listen to him. Luke tells us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he explained the Bible to his apostles. He explained how the law and the prophets were fulfilled in him, right? What we get in the New Testament is that apostolic explanation of who Jesus is from Jesus himself. Does that make sense? Now, we're just getting started. That's just half of it, all right? The three that went up were James, Peter, and John. Now, I want to be quick here. The James that went up the mountain is not the James, the brother of Jesus, However, when you read the book of Acts, Luke tells us about this James's execution. Uh, he was killed pretty early on in the evangelism of the church. However, right after this James dies, James, the brother of Jesus, rises in authority. And scholars think that perhaps James, the brother of Jesus, sort of stepped in where this James died. Okay? But this is the spooky thing. In Galatians, Paul refers to James, Peter, and John as what? Pillars. Just before the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, some of you who are standing here <laughs> will not taste death until you see the kingdom of heaven which has come. And it's right after that scene that you get this. And so early commentators made the connection between the imagery of a pillar and the three disciples who were standing, right? 
um, in front of this image. And so the whole thing kind of fits together in a pretty cool way. Now, James, Peter, and John, and this is kind of interesting, I thought. Um, you've got uh, two guys with beards. Um, that's Peter and James. John, whenever he's depicted in these icons, is beardless uh, because he was, according to tradition, the youngest of the apostles. And he was probably the last living apostle. Um, when he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it was probably towards the end of the first century. Uh, but anyway, you get James, Peter, and John who become the primary apostolic authorities uh, in the New Testament. Okay, So does that help? That's the Bible. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's the Bible. I can't put it any more simply. Um, and, and what I like about symbols and images is you can meditate on them, right? But the point of this, of this image is that everything holds together in Christ, in Christ. Okay. All right. Um, do we do a 10-minute break? Q&A. Q &A. All right. See you in 10.